welcome to the Women in Leadership podcast series presented by BIV. I'm Haley Wooden, Executive Editor of Business in Vancouver. This series is sponsored by the Women's Enterprise Center. The nonprofit organization is devoted to helping BC women start, lead, and grow their own businesses. For over 25 years, they provided business loans of up to $150,000, plus integrated services, including advice, training, mentorship, resources, and a supportive community to help female business owners gain the skills, the mindset, financing, and networks that they need to realize their business potential and goals. Throughout this week, I'll be exploring the topics of leadership, adversity, growth, and inclusion with four truly remarkable female leaders. You can watch the series at BIV.com video and listen to the conversations at BIV.com audio. And all updates on the series as we post new episodes throughout the week will be made available at BIV.com slash article slash WIL for women in leadership. Here's today's episode. My guest today is Dr. Judith Sayers, president of the New Channel Tribal Council and Chancellor of Vancouver Island University. Judith is a member of the Hoopachessa First Nation, which she served as chief for 14 years. In 2019, she became a member of the Order of Canada. She has also received Clean Energy BC's Lifetime Achievement Award, and in 2016 was named one of Canada's Clean 50. She has spent a lifetime and a career as an advocate for Indigenous rights and sustainable development and we're thrilled she could join us on our Women in Leadership podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for bringing me on. <laughs> I'm sure there are many to choose from, but is there an achievement or a couple of achievements that really stand out from your career as being very meaningful to you? Well, I think um, both um, the Clean 50 the Lifetime Achievement by Clean Energy BC and the Order of Canada was all in relation to my work in clean energy, which really means a lot to me because I just really want to mitigate climate change. I wanna work on an alternative lifestyle that doesn't include fossil fuels. And so to have that, the work that I do recognized in a very important field to me really feels good. And it's, um, I think those are the, the highlights for sure. You've been working in that area for so long, but it feels as though now the world is perhaps catching up to you in the work of other advocates with some of the commitments coming out of the United States and some of the change that's happening in Canada. What do you make of what's happening now in the clean energy and climate change space? Well, to me, it is thrilling that everybody's talking about it. Everybody's talking about the green economy, uh, clean energy. How do we move away from it? How do we make those opportunities? You know, here in British Columbia, the government is more intent on building a mega dam, which causes incredibly environmental damage and destroys First Nations sacred sites. Haven't been able to persuade them differently. So I guess that's one of the, you know, one of the things that I feel like I still have to work on. Uh, and, you know, just watching across Canada, the interest, uh, you know, I did a global mail panel on renewable energy and there was way over a thousand people, you know, so people really want to know how can we change? What is the state of the industry? What are the costs, you know, because they've gone way down. And so I see a willingness in the public to be making these major changes, even in their own homes. And 
you know, in First Nations communities, it's becoming energy sovereign. And, you know, it's this pattern that I didn't see way back in 2002 when I started in this industry. And so it's, um, it's really satisfying that um, people now have the vision that we need going forward. Do you think we're moving past this idea that it's economic development or taking care of the environment and closer toward viewing as protecting protecting the environment as part of economic development? Well, I think it is, I think it is the latter that people are looking more at economic development with sustainable practices. You know, there are instances, of course, in some of the um, more mega projects where the government is choosing jobs and revenues over the environment, you know, such as Trans Mountain and Site C and LNG, you know, those kinds of projects are still on the government agenda because they just think it's more important than people. And, you know, we still have a large fight ahead of us. And we're hoping with the new law in BC, the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act, and if the federal law on the Universal Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People Act go through, that we can achieve free prior informed consent to any development in our territory. So we have a greater say over what goes on in our territories and we can stop these greenhouse gas emitting projects and projects which destroy the habitats and ecosystems uh, that we use for um, exercising our rights, whether it's fish or animals, sea resources and that sort of thing. So might that then mean that there are potentially future legal challenges on those grounds when it comes to the Site C project? Well, of course, Chief Roland Wilson in the West Moberly does have that in court. And I know there have been court challenges and people will continue to, to fight that. Uh, and I'm sure on other projects, it's going to be the same. And I, when these court cases happen, I don't believe BC had this law in the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. So it's a new tool. And politically, I think it's something that we can continue to use, although we've been trying politics for a long time. But you're still going to see people on the ground camping out, defending the land, and people going to court, going to international tribunals, and doing whatever is necessary to protect our territories because there are things on the land and in the water that are worth fighting for. And we will continue to do so with whatever tools we can use. I don't wanna oversimplify the issue, but in your view, is it possible to have meaningful reconciliation while we also have some of these major projects like Site C that are opposed move forward? Well, you know, it's it's difficult and reconciliation is a continuing, evolving process. So you might hit a roadblock one area, but you may try and work on other areas. You know, the the kind of issues I go through every day, you know, varies all the time. In some areas you make progress in other areas you don't, uh, but you can't give up. Uh, you just got to keep on trying for that really big reconciliation when the government will say, we respect your rights and title, we respect your need to the relationship to the land, 
and all the rights that you exercise there and we're not gonna approve this now. As opposed to saying in the public interest, we're going to approve this, uh, you know, and, and we've heard that too many times. And so it's a goal, um, a vision that we set that we're going to get there someday. You know, and, and a lot of times I just think that, you know, sight, see, I think Mother Earth will take care of that somehow, that it's, it's just too much and that something will happen up there in the way of a natural disaster that will that will deal with that because, you know, certainly we've been trying um, and I just think there are too many environmental impacts that are negative that may result in some form of natural disaster. Like what you said, I think it's very true. Sometimes you win some, sometimes you lose some. And to me, that speaks like having a very long-term view of what the long-term goals are and, and moving forward where you can and acknowledging sometimes when you can't do that or when the circumstances are such that you can't. From your years as a negotiator, as a leader, as someone who has had a relationship and been working with governments, what have you learned about leadership and what have you learned about negotiation and what works and what doesn't? Well, I think leadership is a very lonely place that oftentimes while people may be supporting you, you're the one out in front fighting the battles and dealing with uh, any of the negativity uh, that comes back at you for being a voice, for stating what you believe to be true. And, you know, it's it's not an easy road, believe me, to to be on. Um, I think what's strengthened me through the years, of course, are my two children who are now growing and fighting with me. Uh, but, you know, growing up, it was always trying to make sure that they had something to live for, something to work on, that they would still be able to go out and fish sockeye and, you know, gather crabs and prawns and hunt deer and elk and be able to use, um, our forests, our cedar for our regalia. You know, those were the things that drove me and still do. I don't have any grandchildren yet, but you know, it's for the many, many generations of First Nations people ahead of us that um, I fight for. It's not just my children, but it's, you know, as the New Chalith Nation, we need to be strong. And how do we do that? And it's so, you know, in negotiations, you have to go in with a clear view and a clear picture of what you're looking for and what you want. And you're always maintaining that position with governments, trying to be innovative and creative and come up with the same answers. Um, knowing that, knowing when you've hit the wall with the governments and when to back off and look at other ways or just walking away. It's, um, you know, I, they'll always try to come at you to say, well, this is the best deal you're ever going to get and you should take it. Or, you know, um, if you don't take this, something else less is going to be available to you. You know, and, and I've learned over the years um, that money isn't everything. It's nothing if you can't go out onto the land and go to your sacred sites, go out to the ocean and get your salmon or go into the forest and gather your medicines. If you can't do that, you know, then what's money going to buy you? And so I, you know, we've often said to governments, you know, our rights are invaluable. We can't put a price tag on them. 
you can't buy us out. So, you know, and they're talking about accommodation. So you just have to have a clear vision when you go into negotiations, you have to know uh, what you can achieve, uh, what you can't achieve. And I think it's a matter of being very, being able to be on a good relationship and talking points. But, you know, when you need to throw those punches, you throw those punches. Yeah, I think the governments know me well enough to that I will say when they're doing something when they're doing something right. When we've achieved something, we we achieved gaming revenue sharing um, two years ago, and I've been working on that file for 13 years, and people have been working on it longer. Uh, and wow, government, we did this, you know, and, and it was a big achievement, and and it's something to celebrate together because you got there. You just don't give up. Uh, but there are moments like that. And then there are moments when you like sightsee or like, and we haven't given up that battle. Or like when you're trying to protect a particular mountain in your territory and, you know, the governments just don't want to do that. And so then you just try and find out, is there ways we can co-manage that? Can we protect certain areas? So you try and find ways to protect what's important to you. And you're always thinking like that. You're always thinking to the future, you have to be a visionary to be a leader. You, you can't just look at the now, you got to look to the future. What is it we're going to need in the future? How are we going to keep what we need going into the future? And how do we, how do we work with governments when they're not willing to work with us? And I think we saw a lot of that during the Harper years. But you just hang in there and <laughs> you do what you can do. You mentioned uh, leadership can be lonely. That certainly resonates. I'm sure it resonates with a lot of our listeners. When you and I spoke for a Women in Business article several years ago, at the time, I included a stat that said you were one of two Indigenous women who held available board seats. And I think there were 267 available board seats on some of the biggest crown corporations or public companies in BC. That is a very, very small number. And I have to imagine that can also be lonely being the only woman or only Indigenous woman around a boardroom table. Yeah, it can be. You know, we think differently. We come at things differently. And trying to express that at, at the board table is sometimes uh, brushed off, sometimes not listened to, or sometimes listened to, but yeah, it doesn't really fit into our picture. You know, but you just keep, I mean, I just keep sending the same messages, you know, and, and there's a lot of things we agree on in common, but there are some things that are definitely different. Uh, when you sit at some of those bigger tables and, um, you know, it's a great learning experience. I find it's, it's great um, bridge building, you know, trying to have people understand the Indigenous worldview, our, our points, what, you know, what's important to us, because it does differ. It's, it is very different. And so you just have to paint those pictures for people. And, you know, I think they change over the years. There are certainly a lot of companies and organizations talking about diversifying their senior management, diversifying their boards, a lot of promises and commitments that I'm sure are well-intentioned. Do you think we're starting to see more meaningful change in practice or is there still a ways to go on that? I still think it's a slow going. I think, you know, it, it is increasing, but I also think that, 
we still do need more indigenous people on boards. And, you know, I think if there's more indigenous people on some of these larger boards of companies, then they can try and understand how to work properly with indigenous peoples, how to build relationships and to try and protect what's important to First Nations. I mean, if you can protect what's important, you know, maybe the development can go ahead. So I think having that kind of skill, expertise and knowledge on a board is awesome. And I think more companies should do it. You know, like you said, it's lonely if you're the only one there. Uh, you know, we, we see some of these, um, for instance, uh, the National Energy Board, you know, they put indigenous people on there or the BCUC, but that's one person. And so if you're doing some kind of hearings and that indigenous person isn't on your hearing, then what difference does that make? Or if there's only one person that understands what you're talking about and, you know, if you're trying to describe how important your land is or how important the sacred site is or, you know, something like that. And people just don't understand it because they don't have the same beliefs we do. And so for me, that's always been the challenge is, you know, because there's some things you don't share because it is sacred. Um, how do you communicate that? so that somebody is going to understand it? How are you going to open their minds and their hearts? Uh, because so many times we've seen it, they just override and approve a project in an area that's vital to a First Nations culture or spirituality. And you know that's just devastating to us. Uh, so that's still a, a skill and an art I'm working on. And I was trying to move forward because there's just so much development in our territories now. You can be out in the middle of the forest and people are out there on their ATVs or their trucks and they're hunting. And, you know, there's not a lot of space out there that's private anymore to do some of our cultural practices. So life is definitely different. No doubt. I'm curious what opportunities you see in the field of education for maybe starting to have these changes in mindset, these learnings a bit earlier in one's career. You have this uh, relatively new position as Chancellor of Vancouver Island University appointed last year, I believe. What are some of your goals in that position? Well, I think some of my goals are to be able to have a safe space to learn in. Um, that would be free of racism, that would be free of barriers. And so, you know, as an Indigenous person, you may want to do your research in a different way or present your research in a different way. And oftentimes academia says, no, you can't do that. But why not? And so I, I want to open up more doors in Indigenous peoples doing the kinds of research they want to do and in their own way as opposed to the normal way of, of people doing a dissertation or a thesis. But I think it's really, really important to feel that you know you are being accepted into a post-secondary institution where you are valued and appreciated as, as a student and you're not just there as a, a number or statistic and that. And, and you see it more and more that, um, and, and it has to open up more, is that people need to do things and change what's out there um, so that students can feel like they can do what they need to do. Um, 
Yeah, there's a lot of barriers um, put up. And, you know, some people walk away from doing their master's and doctorate because they can't do what they want. We don't want to lose those people. We want to embrace those people. We want to embrace new ways of learning and sharing because this really is vital information for future generations. This is, um, you want to entice and interest our younger people to go to universities and get their higher degrees because we need them. We need those minds, but we also need them to have an education and be schooled in our ways. You know, and, and one of our dreams uh, is to have a land, and, and you see them around, but a land-based university. How do we do that in every territory where our young people can learn all those things that need to be learned about the environment, about stewardship, about going out on the land and, and picking cedar and medicinal plants, and how do you do that? And, you know, we're in an uncertain world. I mean, we've seen it with COVID, but you know, if an earthquake was to hit us or a tsunami, uh, how is it we can survive on the land? I think those are skills that we know. We just need to teach them more. And if we can find ways to be doing that um, within a education setting, I, th I think we'll be very powerful and that we can be able to help all people um, if such a thing could happen. So it's always being prepared for what the future might bring. And just utilizing, you know, our ways of knowing, our and indigenous wisdom, I call it, and having that um, shared amongst our people is some of those greater kinds of things. And, and of course, just having everybody respect indigenous people. You know, if you're in a university where, you know, there is acceptance of people of color, and what does that mean? What does that look like? How do we change, you know, those kinds of, of things? And um, yeah, there's a lot of challenges, I think, in education. But with those challenges, there's tons of opportunities. And, uh, you know, people are starting to think in much different ways and embracing those new ways. And it's interesting to listen to best practices and to see where some of these academic institutions are going and some aren't. And those are the ones that we have to show what is possible. Certainly, when I hear what you're saying, I think it's exciting. We're in such a rapidly changing and evolving world. There are new challenges being thrown at us. We could really use new ways or a return to very old traditional ways of thinking. Why wouldn't we use sort of every tool or option that's out there? Exactly. Do you have any advice for the next generation of political leaders, business leaders, influencers who are maybe coming up against some of those barriers earlier in their educational or professional careers? What advice or insights can you share with them? Um, I think there's many things uh, a person can do. But one of the things that I see that is somewhat lacking is having a voice not being afraid to speak you're not mine, not being afraid to fight for what you believe in, even though everyone else in the room is thinking differently or it feels like everybody else in the room is against you. I just think that some people are afraid to venture out when you know there's that kind of opposition against you. Um, but you have to be that voice. Um, otherwise there'll be no change. 
everybody will think everything is fine. So I, I think just being strong and being able to speak out and write what you're doing and to continue to advocate it. I think that's one of the biggest skills that a person needs to learn is advocating or lobbying and talking to people and not being afraid to pick up the phone and ask for a call with the minister, the deputy minister or the prime minister or whoever. You know, I, you might not get that, but, you know, you'll, you'll end up talking to somebody. So using those skills and talking to people, you know, putting your point forward, not being too, um, too many words, but learning to be concise and clear about what you want and need. This is what you want and need. And these are your arguments. And if you can be that way, you know, people are going to listen to you. You know, if you go off on a tangent and people aren't going to listen to you as quickly. So I think being able to advocate is one of those skills that um, a young leader needs. And also being able to surround yourself with a great team. You know, you can't do everything. You can't know everything. But, you know, you have a team around you that can do that. They know, you know, what to tell you, to prepare you. You know, and at times let them have that voice. You know, that's how you train new leaders is you show them uh, that whole, you know, positive leadership is something that uh, I think also has changed. You know, we're trying to get rid of any kind of lateral violence. Uh, you know, it's the way you accept what people say and deal with it. Yeah, okay, I hear you, but what about this or what about that? You know, and it's mentoring those new upcoming leaders in a positive way that reinforces, yes, you're thinking the right way, but maybe you need to think differently here. Um, you know, I, there's just so many neat things that you can do as a person that's in leadership. Um, by sharing your skills with younger people coming up, but also by showing the world that this is who we are. This is who we are as an Indigenous person. This is how I am, I am as an Indigenous woman in leadership. This is what I do, and this is what I want to do. Uh, and they may not always agree with you, but if they're at the point where they're willing to listen to you, you've gone a long ways. Because yeah, if people just don't want to listen to you, you will never get anywhere. But that's what I always you know, when I was a university professor and I tell my students, you don't have to agree with me. Give me your argument and back it up and I'm going to grade you just as well. I said, it's knowing what those reasons are and how you think that's powerful. And so I, you know, really encourage them to think on their own. And that's what this is all about is using what you know, using what you value and, and just portraying that as a leader and, and finding and finding mentors, finding people that you can uh, vent with. You know, there are times when I just really want to kick the walls. <laughs> you know, you can pick up the phone and say, oh, you know, I'm, and then, then you calm down and then you think better. Or the alternative of what I like to do as well is go out for a walk in the woods or go to the water or, you know, so you got to find ways to vent, to let those negative feelings out so you're not doing it in a destructive way in public it's just not what you can do you're building your credibility you're building your reputation and yeah we get frustrated we're people <laughs> we're not perfect but you know it's just 
you know, you can state what you need to state when you're angry. You just have to be careful how you do it. Uh, and that too is a skill. Yeah. I definitely am guilty of writing out the email I want to send and deleting it. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you yeah. have to do that. Yeah, you got to let it out. Otherwise, it, it, it'll come out at some point in some way, I imagine, right? So it's better to kind of control how you do that. Yeah. Or just step back and rethink, how can I say this in a more strategic way while showing your anger? I mean, you need to express that. It's just how you express that anger that is important. Absolutely. Judith, thank you so much for taking the time to come on our Women in Leadership podcast. Yeah. And thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed it. That's Dr. Judith Sayers. She is the president of the New Channel Tribal Council and the Chancellor of Vancouver Island University. 